You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Something people don't realize is that infectious disease was actually pretty rare in the Americas until Europeans arrived. But once unleashed, those foreign diseases spread like wildfire through tribal communities. Some communities lost as much as 50% of their population to disease. Some went nearly extinct. Historians have long written off this devastation as a so-called virgin soil effect. That's when a population comes into contact with new diseases they've never been exposed to before and succumbs in huge numbers. But that narrative, that's the overly simple one that eases the consciences of the colonizers and their descendants. All that death, it was unintentional, a terrible accident of nature. Or so goes the common refrain. But as we've heard this season, from the very beginning, colonizers used disease as a convenient tool of genocide. Disease spreads quickly when people are starving or forced on long marches or into boarding schools, stripped of the cultural lifeways they rely on for good health. A few years back, I covered the commemoration of the signing of the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868. It was held on the banks of the North Platte River on the eastern plains of Wyoming. Indigenous families from all over the American West came and set up camp among the cottonwoods. Some even rode horseback for weeks across the Great Plains to attend. Fort Laramie Treaty is filled with broken promises. One of those was to provide doctors and medicine to the Sioux and Arapaho tribes. I found a chair among all the people packed inside a big white tent to hear drum circles and stories. One voice I remember especially, 98-year-old Dakota member Marie Randall told the story of protesting at Standing Rock, how she stopped an army truck in its tracks and made it turn around. She said, the fights over immigration need to stop, that we need to remember we're all human beings living on the earth together. And she said something I heard repeated several times that day. 
Yes, we were nearly wiped out, but we should be proud because we're still here. From Wyoming Public Media, PRX, and the Pulitzer Center, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. We've come to the final installment of our series, Shall Furnish Medicine. Last time, we saw how tribes used new laws adopted in the mid-20th century to begin the arduous process of taking back control of tribal health. We learned that the Northern Arapaho had just recently opened their own clinic. And that's where things stand in the spring of 2020, when Savannah Marr is living in Wyoming, doing her job, covering the daily news on the Wind River Reservation. Think back to March of 2020, before the school closures and the mask mandates and the grocery store shortages. What was the last normal day of your life? For me, that day was March 8th, before I hunkered down in my studio apartment in Lander, Wyoming, before my days spent reporting on the pandemic start to bleed together, I go to a parade. The Wind River Reservation loves its youth basketball teams. And in 2020, the Wyoming Indian High School Chiefs and Lady Chiefs won the state championship for the second year in a row. So on March 8th, the community is showing them some serious love. There are probably 100 people here in the hardware store parking lot, and many more lined up to watch the parade along Federal Boulevard. The fire department has loaned the teams a couple of its engines. Greg LeBeau is celebrating his grandson, Tuff. Oh, very proud of him. Did you get to see the game last night? You bet. Darn right. Exciting. Up and down. (laughs) Roller coaster game, boy. I can tell he's still pretty jazzed. He tells me these back-to-back wins mean a lot. Yeah, it's so important to the young men and women. In the old days, we counted coup. They went out and they stole horses and all that. This is, takes its place to me. Greg has to go off to get a photo with his grandson, so he hands me over to his daughter, Crystal Seabaring, Tuff's mom. Yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of him, you know. Ever since he was little, he always had a ball in his hand. Um, he's always wanted to be a chief. By now, all the kids have climbed on top of the fire engines. To kick things off, a community drum group called North Bear plays them an honor song, composed especially for the occasion. North Bear are standing in a circle, singing as loudly as they can to be heard across the parking lot. Families are huddled together, some sharing blankets to ward off the bitter morning cold. We aren't thinking much about this strange illness that's ripping through other countries, or about how that illness has started to crop up in parts of the U.S. There are families here who have no idea this is the last time they'll be together for a year. Kids who don't realize it will be months before they go back to school or play another basketball game. I leave the Chiefs Parade thinking I'll see all these people again in just a few days. There's a big feed and a blanketing ceremony planned for the kids this coming week. 
But that celebration never happens. On the day it was scheduled, the World Health Organization declares a global pandemic. Breaking news now. Let's get to it. It has to do with COVID-19. The World Health Organization has declared the coronavirus outbreak a pandemic. We describe a pandemic as meaning a disease that's spreading in multiple countries around the world at the same time. On the same day, the first COVID-19 case is identified closer to home. In Wyoming, an adult woman tested positive. The health department is investigating her exposure risk and who may have had contact uh, with her. The school districts on the Wind River Reservation are the first in the state of Wyoming to close their doors. Then come a flurry of joint tribal health orders. First, a state of emergency. The current situation is something that nobody is prepared to handle. It is a situation that changes by the hour. Then all tribal offices and non-essential businesses are ordered to close. Please be cautious during these extremely vulnerable times. Be aware that you could be carrying this disease without any symptoms. By the last week of March, the Joint Council goes one step further. A resolution was passed to the Wind River Intertribal Council mandating a stay-at-home order for all residents of the Wind River Indian Reservation. Please stay at home. Do not continue to be out in public places, possibly exposing yourself and our loved ones to this deadly disease. And violators may be subject to criminal or civil contempt. That strict stay-at-home order is the first one to be enacted in Wyoming. And for months, it's the only such order in the state. By now, it feels like months have passed since that parade through downtown Riverton, since this community that thrives on connection and togetherness has become so fragmented. Really, all this has happened in a little under two weeks. At this point, I have no idea how to do my job. Wind River taught me how to be a reporter. It taught me that to stay connected with this community and maintain its trust, I need to physically show up to celebrations, funerals, cross-country meets, ceremony. And suddenly, I can't do any of that. Instead, I'm hitting people up on Facebook Messenger, trying to piece together their experiences from afar. In late March, I get on the phone with Crystal Seabaring, who I chatted with at the parade, to see how her family is holding up. She tells me that her dad, Greg, who is so proud to watch his grandson play in the championship, is isolating with another of his daughters that she can't remember the last time she's gone this long without seeing him. My dad, he's, he's almost 80. <laughs> and so he's, um, you know, he, he has diabetes, you know, he has issues. So just keeping, keeping him safe and protected. And, and he's like the key to our family that holds us together. It's important to protect him and keep him safe because he's the patriarch, I guess, of our family right now. She's afraid for him and for all of Wind River's elders, who we know by now are especially vulnerable to the worst symptoms of this disease. It's scary to think if they were gone, like, what would we have as a tribe? Would we be able to survive? Would we be able to call ourselves Rappo even?
Last episode, we talked about Wind River Cares, the healthcare provider that the Arapaho tribe built from the ground up when it took over management of its healthcare needs from the IHS. Wind River Cares CEO Richard Brannon remembers the very early days of the COVID crisis. It was about maybe February or right around March. And for some reason, I woke up in the morning and I was scared to death, okay? Because, you know, I looked at our um, existing president then, Donald Trump, and I knew he was totally incompetent. I knew he was totally incapable of having any empathy or any understanding or the ability to manage a healthcare response to a pandemic. Richard didn't see any lifelines closer to home either. We can't rely on the state, and then the county is the same. And so throughout my life, it's always been, we as Arapahoe people, we have to do it ourselves. We have to rely on ourselves. Um, There isn't going to be somebody coming with a big white hat and a big white stallion and rearing up and saying, oh, I'm going to save you or whatever. We, We have to do it ourselves. Soon after that bad night's sleep, the Northern Arapaho Tribe launched Wyoming's first drive through testing program. Good morning, whatever cares. This is Lindsay. How can I help you? Hi, good morning. I'm out in the parking lot to get tested, and I need to register as a patient. Date of birth? November 1st, 1994. Your name? Savannah. Mar- it's early May now, and COVID-19 testing is not easy to come by in Wyoming. In Fremont County, even people who've had direct exposures are being denied tests unless they're symptomatic and at high risk for serious illness. But at the Wind River Cares Clinic in Arapahoe, they're testing just about everyone who needs it. So just slip right down into the back of your throat. Okay. Okay, so here I come up. Let's have you remove your mask down. Okay. So here I come. This first brain poke does not feel good. It makes my head hurt and my eyes water. That's it. Cool. We'll give you a call in three to five days with positive or negative results. Have fun. I park my car and walk over to the camper that's been transformed into a testing center. It's my first time reporting in the field since that parade. I'm wearing a mask, latex gloves, and I've rigged my microphone to the end of a broomstick handle so that I don't need to get too close to anyone. I think it looks like a fishing pole, but the staff have some other interpretations. Hello. I was like, is that a metal detector? What is this? I thought it was a climbing quick stick. I was like, oh, what are we doing? What are we climbing? Where are we going? Where are we going? I'm getting kind of a slap happy vibe from the testing team, a collection of doctors and nurses who had to switch gears overnight and build this program from scratch. Christina Gonzalez, the nurse who tested me, tells me things have been hectic. The first couple of weeks were touch and go. That was real hairy. We were working out of a tent. Papers were flying into the field. I mean, it was, this is kind of, I don't know, a castle compared to where we were seven weeks ago. Now it's a pretty well-oiled machine. Christina walks me through the protocol. So this is our system that we have here. we have lab core test, we have state test, and then we have a completed box. So with our lab core, as you see, Sherry's grabbing one of those. Um, she's getting a specific swab that we use. Do you need more? Yeah. Okay, I'll be right back. 
Christina tracks down those swabs. Then we watch from the camper while Sherry tests an SUV full of people. Two elders in the front seat, a teenager, and a couple of younger kids in the back. By now, a few dozen people have tested positive for COVID-19 on Wind River. And compared to other parts of the state, that's a lot. But it's hard to know whether this actually reflects a higher infection rate here. That's because right now, Wind River is the only community in Wyoming that's conducting mass testing of the whole community, young and old, with and without symptoms. We had our biggest days last week between uh, the Arapahoe Clinic and the Ethidy Clinic of over 400 tests um, between the two clinics. Um, And it was an incredible sight to see as far as lines being lined up all the way to 17 Mile Road. To make this strategy work, Wind River Cares has deputized most of its staff to help. Receptionists and CNAs are checking in patients, custodians are directing traffic. The other major component of Wind River Cares strategy is robust contact tracing. And leading the charge on that is a dentist. The dental field, right now we're working on very, you know, emergency, limited type kind of patients. So we've really scaled back the dental clinic, but that kind of allowed me to transition back into my public health kind of hat. Dentist Haley Kazort has a master's in epidemiology, and Wind River Cares has put her expertise to work. I would say within the last two weeks, we are, the number of cases really just blew up. And the reason for that is because we really started hounding down on that contact tracing. You know, clinic really hit home that we needed to interview cases and really find out who they'd been in contact with and get in, in contact with those contacts so that they could either come to the clinic to get tested for their own peace of mind, uh, or at the very least, make sure that they're being quarantined as well. By now, we're two months into this thing. The message we're getting from the state and county health officials in Wyoming is that resources for combating COVID-19 are scarce. That there just aren't enough tests to go around or enough public health workers to trace every possible contact. But it's happening here on Wind River. Paul Ebert, the Northern Arapaho Tribe's chief medical officer, is too busy to talk with me when I visit the clinic. But I catch him on Zoom a few days later. We made the decision early on that we were going to be very aggressive about this. We are in a situation where we are a very vulnerable population. We have many houses with multiple generations in them where you have young people living with older people who are at high risk. And if this starts really spreading, um, we are probably the highest risk population in the state. The Northern Arapaho Business Council has directed Wind River Cares to do whatever it takes to protect vulnerable people from the virus. Dr. Ebert tells them, okay, we're going to need to take the exact opposite approach as the state of Wyoming. If you do not test, you're not going to find cases. If you look at the countries that have been successful, if you listen to every expert, they say three things, basically. One, the way to get on top of this is extensive testing. Two, good contact tracing. And three, social distancing. Okay, so strict public health measures, robust testing, and contact tracing are the gold standard. 
But what's allowing this small tribal clinic to do all that, while the rest of the state says it isn't possible? Quite frankly, part of it is money. You know, we decided we're going to spend our money. Uh, we are not for profit. We, you know, we have to make money to be able to provide services, but we are not for profit. So we made the decision that if we lose money on this, we're going to lose money on this with the testing. We're just paying for it. I mean, we bill where we can, but we're not charging anybody. To be clear, it's not that Wind River Cares has tons of extra money to throw around. As we heard last episode, the Indian Health Service provides it with about 35% of the funding it needs to care for northern Arapaho citizens. The difference is made up with tribal funds, which are already stretched thin. But the Business Council has greenlit a big investment in private lab testing, an investment they know they might lose money on. The council has even converted the tribe's hotel, usually a revenue driver, for quarantine housing. Particularly to try to protect elders. So if you're positive, if you show up positive and you live in a house where you're going to put a lot of people at risk, you can go to the hotel. They provide meals. You have to stay in your room other than to walk down and get your meals. This is especially important since many homes on the reservation aren't just multi-generational. They're severely overcrowded. It's not uncommon for 10 or 15 family members to share a two-bedroom home. This housing shortage is the result of decades of federal neglect and failure to make good on treaty promises, just like the health disparities on Wind River. The business councils can't remedy those crises overnight, but they can repurpose what resources they have towards mitigating COVID spread. While I'm watching this play out on Wind River, I'm also keeping tabs on other tribal communities, talking with friends about what's happening on their reservations, with other journalists who cover Indian country. And I realize that what's happening here isn't isolated. Tribal governments are taking this thing seriously. The Cheyenne River and Oglala Lakota have set up highway checkpoints to monitor travel through their reservations. Others have gone a step further. Some Pueblo communities are locked down entirely. No one in, no one out. The Navajo Nation, the Porch Creek Band of Indians, and many others retooled manufacturing businesses to produce PPE for local hospitals and tribal citizens in need. Tribes are sending their employees home with pay rather than laying them off. They're coordinating food and supply deliveries to help their citizens stay home as much as possible. They're prioritizing the health and well-being of their communities above economic interests. But many of these tribes are doing so without the cooperation of neighboring communities. Take Wyoming. It's one of a handful of states that never implemented a stay-at-home order. On May 17th, the day when most of the state's initial restrictions are lifted, I speak with Richard Gard. He's the mayor of Riverton, the largest town bordering Wind River. Well, I was just out at lunch, and I was hoping that all the restaurants would be open, but uh, I found that the trailhead was open, and so was the pit stop. So I had lunch at the pit stop, and uh, I'll probably have dinner at the trailhead. The city has just announced that its hot air balloon rally will go on, an event that draws ballooners from out of state and hundreds of spectators to Riverton City Park. And there's a lot of other things that go in conjunction with that. 
I think that there's lots of activity out there and people want to get out and participate. While reservation residents are under a strict stay-at-home order, folks in Riverton and Lander, where I live, are being encouraged to get out and get the economy moving again. Despite the fact that Fremont County has the highest number of COVID-19 cases in the state. When I ask Mayor Gard about this, he rightly points out that the county might not actually be experiencing higher case numbers than other parts of Wyoming. We're not the hot spot. We're just the spot that they're spending all the money to do testing. The, nowhere else in the state are they testing unless you're a medical provider. I think we have uh, the reservation and we have all of the federal dollars being poured in on that project and they get special treatment over the rest of the state. But Mayor Gard got that part wrong, reflecting a lot of misconceptions in the state about the reservation's pandemic response. It was tribal, not federal dollars, funding the mass testing program at Wind River Cares. Just look at the other medical provider on Wind River, the Eastern Shoshone Tribe's IHS clinic, which is fully funded and operated by the feds. It's testing at the same slow pace as the rest of Wyoming. No special treatment there. But many border town residents see the Arapaho testing program not as a proactive investment, but as an unfair benefit for tribal members. Either way, Mayor Gard seems to see it as a waste of money. We want to make sure that everybody understands that, that their, their health is their responsibility. But other than that, we've got to get Riverton back to work. Wind River and its border towns might like to think of themselves as separate, but they're deeply intertwined. In normal times, members of both communities move back and forth constantly. Folks like me cross the border to work, Border town kids go to school on the res and vice versa. People go into town to shop and run errands and to visit and take care of family. I watch that movement slow down when COVID arrives, but it doesn't come to a complete halt. And that means the Eastern Shoshone and Northern Arapaho tribes' strict public health measures only go so far. It's impossible now to know how the coronavirus first reached Fremont County whether Patient Zero lived on the reservation or in a border town. But Wind River's first COVID-19 deaths start with a trip off the reservation. Good morning, everyone. It is uh, with a heavy heart that I come to you all today on behalf of the Northern Rappel Business Council, on behalf of the Northern Rappel Tribe. This is then-chairman Lee Spoonhunter of the Northern Rappel Business Council addressing the tribe on a live stream. It is with great sadness and a heavy heart that the Northern Rappel Tribe confirms the deaths of four of our own who tested positive for coronavirus COVID-19. All four pass away on April 20th. Three are members of the same immediate family, elders Larry and Gloria Wheeler, and their 55-year-old daughter, Dawn Wheeler. They die in the hospital within hours of each other. About a month after their passing, I pack up that broomstick I jerry-rigged into a boom pole, put on a mask, and visit with some of the Wheeler's relatives outside their home in Fort Washakie. It's a chilly morning, 
I can see from the yard that there's still plenty of snow up in the Wind River Mountains. The wheelers sit on patio furniture with blankets in their laps as they describe the nightmare they've lived through. For the past two months, kind of been like a big blur since um, my Aunt Gloria got sick because she was the first one to get sick out of us all. A week before they got sick, my mom was um, with Larry and Gloria. They spent the day together. Then my mom caught the germ or whatever and brought it home, and so everybody in my household got it. Julia Antelope is Larry and Gloria's niece and Don's cousin. She's one of 14 members of the Wheeler's extended family who fell ill, and one of several who needed to be hospitalized. When I first got there, they had to take me through the um, ICU, and and I looked to my left like this, and they willed me past all four of them, and they were all intubated. Nobody could come in and see them. Those four family members were Larry, Gloria, Don, and Don's 27-year-old daughter, Ashley, three generations of one Arapaho family. Larry's younger sister, Regina Antelope, tells me she prayed hard for her relatives. But she knew that each passing day spent on ventilators made it less likely that they would pull through. And then when it kept going on and on, and finally I I started realizing that... Um, we were losing Larry and Gloria. I didn't think we were losing Don. I thought Don was going to come out of it. It was hard. I got on my knees a lot of times. I'd tell you know, talk to one of my nieces or somebody, and I'd say, "This is a nightmare. This is this is just the ugliest thing a family can go through." And um, and it was. It was really hell because we couldn't even go to each other's house. Larry, Gloria, and Don's relatives want the world to know a few things about them. That they were devout Christians. That the home they all shared was a safe haven and a soft place for struggling relatives to land that Larry loved spending time outdoors. My dad's always hunted, fished, everything, and he always took us everywhere with him, you know, so we went all over the place with him, the mountains. That Gloria was the whole family's spiritual advisor. I remember having a hard time in my, my life, so I talked to my grandma sat down and had coffee and pie and my grandma was just telling me to be strong and to not give up and she would always do that you know but this last time it really meant a lot to me and I'll hang on to that that Dawn loved children and babies and was very close with her own daughter, Ashley. After she had Ashley, like, all of her time was with her daughter and they were, like, best friends. 
During most of my visit, Ashley is inside resting. She comes outside to speak with me before I leave. More than a month after being released from the hospital, she's walking with a cane and having trouble breathing. She tells me what it was like to be on a ventilator, even though it's hard to talk about. It was really um, scary because I guess some people don't remember, but I remember a lot. And it was basically just a really long nightmare and I couldn't wake up. And it was, a lot of it still sticks with me. I still remember a lot and I'm still trying to deal with it. It's really traumatic. And a lot of it other people can't understand. On top of this, she's grieving the most important people in her life, her mom, Dawn. She was quiet, but she she had a love, lot of um, love in her. She was really caring. She was really gentle. Um, she was happy most of the time, you know. She had her bad days like everyone else, you know, but she she was... She was my favorite person. I really miss her. <laughs> and her grandparents. They were basically like my other parents. And they cared about everyone. They adored everyone. You know, the whole family. And everybody looked up to them. Everybody really loved them. And it's... We're missing like a huge part of our family. They, they were like our glue, you know, they kept everyone together. I think everybody just feels lost. See, the creator let them go together. And they even waited for dawn. And they took dawn, you know, before the night, before the day was over, they took her with. So it was all in, you know, God was in control all that time. And to me, the way I, I, I can look at it, um, to get some comfort is Larry and Gloria and Dawn sacrificed for everybody to look and to start changing their ways and to see how serious this virus is. You know, they didn't go in vain. The Wheelers were exposed to COVID in early March, before the stay-at-home order. They were visiting a relative at a border town nursing home that would host one of the first outbreaks in the state. The coronavirus spread like wildfire through the home that Larry, Gloria, Dawn, and Ashley shared with a handful of other relatives. That home that everyone thought of as a safe haven. One of Dawn's sisters told me that Dawn had been looking for a separate place for her and her daughter, that she'd been on the waiting list for tribal housing for years, but that it never came through. Each of the wheelers had pre-existing medical conditions that made them especially vulnerable to the worst symptoms of COVID-19. Their tragic deaths were the first of many signs that this pandemic was going to hit Wind River hard and that even the tribe's gold standard public health response couldn't reverse the impacts of colonization.
When we come back, the arrival of a vaccine. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. There's a question I've been asked a few times while I've been reporting on the pandemic in Indian country by listeners, by editors, other journalists. If tribal governments did such a great job fighting COVID-19, why have so many indigenous people died from the disease? And far too many indigenous people have died. People like John Brown, who is Oglala Lakota. A lot of people knew him like back then from the powwow trail. So he told me a lot of stories about powwows. That's how I got into powwows. When John passed, his teenage grandson Corwin lost a friend and a mentor. He's a good man. He's a strong person. He was a, a really good grandpa. And people like Carlitz Dennison, an accomplished rodeo athlete and a fluent speaker of the Navajo language. Um, this past year, I bought a book, a Navajo language book, and I showed it to him. And I was like, I want to do this because I want to have a conversation with you at some point in, in Navajo, just fluent Navajo. And he was so excited. And I'm really, really going to miss that about my dad. It was probably the biggest thing I'm going to miss hearing his, you know, language. Carlet's eldest daughter, Devin, says the family didn't expect to lose him so soon, when he was just 63. From the early days of the pandemic, these stories reverberate throughout Indian country. Stories of grandparents dying alone in hospitals. Aunties and uncles lost long before their time, and before they had a chance to pass on language, ceremony, family stories, and traditional knowledge. By summer of 2021, one in every 240 Native Americans has died of COVID-19, compared to one in every 1,300 white Americans. We lost a lot of people that we, very good people, that we loved or still love very much. You feel that loss. Well, some older, older people that had you know, a lot of knowledge, a lot of information about, about our tribe. Uh, a lot of individuals would go around and pray for other people and, and try to help others, and they were more selfless than, than and so we, we lost good people. Way back in February of 2020, 
Richard Brannan at Wind River Cares predicted that Indian country would be hit hard, that help was not on the way. Because we, we knew we didn't have the luxury of waiting for the COVID to, to take over. I mean, we, we had to be proactive. The virus is spreading more quickly through tribal communities because reservation housing shortages have fueled a crisis of overcrowding. The virus is killing more Native people because decades of poor healthcare access makes us sicker and more vulnerable than the general population. In neglecting its treaty responsibilities, the federal government has turned Indian country into a coronavirus kill box. By December of 2020, dozens of people have died of COVID-19 on the Wind River Reservation. People are afraid. But they're also tired of the isolation. Most tribal offices and businesses are still closed. Children are still home from school. Around this time, a business council member tells me he's starting to feel like a broken record that you can only beg people to stay home for so long before the message starts to ring hollow. Soon after this conversation, the tribes roll out a new tool for keeping their people safe. This sound comes from a Facebook Live video that shows a group of elders and healthcare workers getting the very first COVID-19 vaccinations on Wind River. Ceremonial Elder George Moss is first in line. This is for all my people, my rapid people. Okay. After George gets his shot, he addresses his tribe. I've seen a lot of my, my rapal people go home. I went to their funerals. And this COVID-19 disrupted everything that we as rapal people believe in. And today, like I said, it's a special time. I come forth to show my Rapu people that I want this vaccine to come to each and every one of them. I don't want to see no more of my people go home. I've seen enough. All over the country, Native communities are breathing a sigh of relief as their most precious and vulnerable elders get the shot. And from there, there's really no looking back. On a Saturday morning in February, cars are lined up for more than a mile down the road from Gallup Indian Medical Center an Indian Health Service hospital on the eastern edge of the Navajo Nation. I'm here to check in on this community that was once the worst COVID hotspot in the country, now that there's finally a light at the end of the tunnel. Okay, this is your second dose, right? Yes. Okay, what did you guys get the first time? Um, um, Pfizer. Pfizer? Yeah. Okay. Did you guys have any allergic reaction to it? None that I know of. 
Inside a gymnasium, nurses, pharmacists, and physical therapists are administering vaccines to hundreds of very eager patients. Dr. Jonathan Irlu, the IHS's top epidemiologist, says many of them arrived here before dawn. Um, I think the record was 4 a.m. At this point, the national vaccine rollout isn't going so hot. But once again, tribal health care systems are ahead of the curve. Dr. Irlu says the IHS's superpowers are centralization and flexibility. We do primary care, we do hospital care, and we do public health. All three segments are wedded together. And so it's, um, it's fairly easiest to shift from primary care mode to public health mode and arrange something like this with the same staff. Just like the testing operation at Wind River Cares, the vaccination effort here has put the entire hospital staff to work. To better respond to COVID, GIMC has scaled back their non-essential care, things like eye exams, dental cleanings, non-emergency physical therapy, and put those providers to work running these vaccine clinics. Once again, the Indian Health Service is putting public health before profit. In the long line through the gymnasium, I meet 62-year-old Melvin Foster. Yeah, I'm getting my second Pfizer shot. And he's psyched about it. Melvin tells me getting vaccinated is a no-brainer for him. Less than a year into the pandemic, 10 of his relatives have died of COVID-19. It was hard for us. We had their services, graveside. I mean, this virus is something else that nobody shouldn't play with or laugh about. This is a serious issue. Okay, what's your honor? Right by your side. Nice to run. All the way down. Easy poke now. Yeah, I will. I'll be gentle as a lamb. All right. One, two, and. As he waits out the 15-minute observation period, Melvin feels a sense of relief. I've got grandchildren, so i got to stay here as long as I can with them. This was the other thing that allowed the vaccine rollout to go so smoothly on tribal lands. For the most part, Native people were ready and willing to get the shot as soon as it was available to them. The Urban Indian Health Institute was among the first groups to explore this trend. It surveyed 1,300 Native people in late 2020, just before the vaccine became available, and found that 75% planned to get vaccinated right away. Their primary motivation? Protecting their families and communities. Which is, at its core, a public health decision, seeing themselves as individuals who have responsibility to the larger community. This is the Institute's director, Abigail Echohawk. During the pandemic, she's been watching stereotypes about Native communities and our healthcare systems get turned on their head. We have these operating public health systems where we know who our community is. We know the barriers they have to accessing services such as transportation. We know how to reach our people. We just need more resources to be able to protect our entire communities. The IHS isn't perfect. Anyone who's had to wait until the next fiscal year to get their knee surgery paid for understands that. But Abigail says the pandemic has proved it's a system that's not fundamentally broken, just starved of appropriate resources. In 2021, the IHS's budget was $6.2 billion dollars a fraction of the $48 billion that tribal leaders say it would actually take to meet their community's health care needs. They can with the scarce resources they have. I don't want to say that anymore. What if they had all the resources they needed? We could possibly be at herd immunity.
During this conversation, Abigail points out another snag in the system. In early 2021, Native people who live on their tribal lands are getting vaccinated months before they'd be eligible for shots through their surrounding states. But Natives living off-reservation? Not so much. So for urban Indians living in cities that don't have urban Indian health programs that have accessible vaccines, they're going to the same hospital systems, same clinics, the same grocery store pharmacies that other people are trying to go to to get the vaccine, and they're not getting it, even though they are the most at risk. This isn't news to me. Like most Native people in this country, I live away from my tribal community, in Albuquerque now where I've moved for a new job covering tribes across the Mountain West. And while I watch my friends and cousins back home post their vaccine selfies from our small IHS clinic, I'm striking out. In early spring, I meet a guy named Jonathan Concha, who's had the same experience. For the most part, everybody's in my family's been vaccinated already. I'm the last one. Jonathan is 55, and he's a citizen of Taos Pueblo. When the vaccine became available back home, he was willing to make the two-and-a-half-hour drive north from Albuquerque to get it. But his Pueblo was still on strict lockdown. I had called, and they said since I live outside the county that I wasn't eligible to get it. So that's kind of one avenue that, you know, was a roadblock. And when he tried for an appointment at the city's two urban Indian health centers... I wasn't uh, able to register, and uh, they said it was only eligible to patients. As in Native folks who were already registered as patients at these health care centers before the vaccine was available. Jonathan tells me he has private health insurance through his job as an auto technician, so he'd never needed to use the IHS clinics in the city. I mean, if you don't don't visit uh, IHS, then you're basically out of the loop. I'm in the same boat, stuck between the cracks of the Indian Health Service's urban and rural healthcare system, and weighing two pretty crappy options. Do I travel all the way home, possibly exposing myself and my family to a deadly virus so that I can get a shot? Or do I wait it out and remain vulnerable while Native people continue to die of COVID-19 at quadruple the rate of the general population? So my motivation for finding out what's going on at Urban Indian Health Centers isn't entirely journalistic. I'm not surprised to find out it comes down to a lack of funding. Most Native people in this country live in cities, but Urban Indian Health Centers are funded through a single line item that makes up less than 1% of the IHS's budget. Adrian Maddox, who directs the Urban Indian Health Center in Denver, tells me that lack of resources gives these clinics a certain reputation. Historically, our Native population in the Denver area has always thought of our clinic as the clinic that takes care of people that can't afford to go anywhere else. We have really tried hard to change that and say, we are here to take care of our Native population. The clinic's share of federal funding is based partially on how many Indigenous patients actually use the clinic, and many who have private insurance choose to go elsewhere. So it's a vicious cycle that leaves too many urban Indians dispossessed of their treaty right to health care. In early 2021, that cycle has been laid bare at Denver Indian Health. 
Adrian says urban natives who've never used the clinic before are swarming it now, looking for the vaccine. We have a lot, actually. Probably the majority of who we're vaccinating um, probably will not come back. As for why the clinic can't mass vaccinate the way rural IHS clinics have been? We could do an outside clinic, but we need the staff and we need the storage of these vaccines. So a lot of it has to do with what we're able to do within our infrastructure. Adrian doesn't have a dental or a physical therapy department she can deputize to run a big vaccine drive. Neither does the Urban Indian Health Clinic in Albuquerque. They have to enlist help from the State Indian Affairs Department and various other Native-serving organizations to run the first mass vaccination event for Natives in the city. Is it two of you? Just one. Okay. And you are Jonathan? Concha? C-O-N-C-H-A? Okay. That's where Jonathan and I finally get our shots in April. Okay, let's have your sleeve up then. Okay, here comes the Pope. Ready, Pope. Awesome. You did great. All right, you're almost there. 15 minutes of observation. So you're going to pull up and head left to that parking lot. By the standard set elsewhere in Indian country, I was a vaccine straggler. But I still got my shot a month before the state of New Mexico opened up appointments to people my age. It's tempting to stop here with the success of Indian Country's vaccine rollout. By midsummer of 2021 and beyond, we have the highest vaccination rate of any racial or ethnic group in the country. That's something to be proud of. But tribal communities didn't just pack it in when we hit that milestone. Let's wrap this up where we started, on the Wind River Reservation. The Northern Arapaho tribe has a new chairman now, a young guy named Jordan Dresser. And he's proud that 75% of eligible Arapahos on Wind River are fully vaccinated compared to less than 40% of Wyomingites. But that second number scares him. Wyoming is one of the lowest in in the nation. So our tribal members take a risk every time they travel throughout the state, which, you know, we're Wyoming citizens as well. We should be able to go freely everywhere and feel safe. But unfortunately, you know, that's not the case. And masks are basically optional. Vaccines are very low, so we just feel like this was a way for us to exercise our sovereign muscle and also protect our people at all costs. In the middle of a nationwide labor shortage, the Northern Arapaho Business Council passes a resolution requiring tribal employees and anyone who works with children on the reservation to get a shot. To show that we're, number one, in the middle of a pandemic. It didn't go away. You know, the coronavirus did not go away. It's here and it's mutating, as we can see. And it's just to show that we're serious about it and we're serious about protecting our people. Schools and businesses on Wind River have lost employees over this mandate, and it's made it even more difficult to attract new workers. 
But once again, this tribal government is putting its economic interests on the back burner. I think it comes down to the idea that Native communities are collective cultures, meaning that we've always traditionally thought about each other, as opposed to individualistic culture, which is basically Americans, you know, which is me, me, me. The pandemic has been hell for Arapaho people. But more than 18 months in, Jordan says they're still willing to make sacrifices for the community. I think that people are comfortable making that sacrifice for each other because it's not about you. And it's the idea that we take care of each other. When somebody's down, we try to help as much as possible, you know? And that's the power of a collective culture. So back to that question about why tribal government's best efforts weren't enough to prevent so many indigenous people's deaths. When the pandemic arrived in Indian country, tribes weren't just battling the virus itself. They were battling history. Five hundred years of colonization, centuries of land theft and coercive treaty making, decades of failure by the federal government to actually make good on the promises laid out in those treaties. Things like good health care, housing, basic infrastructure that would allow people to live safe and healthy lives. The United States Constitution, the bedrock of American democracy, declares these treaties the supreme law of the land. So let's ask instead, why is this country so comfortable breaking them? This episode is dedicated to Larry, Gloria, and Don Wheeler, John Brown, Carlitz Dennison, and every Native person who lost their life to COVID-19, and to their families who have learned to live without them. Thanks for joining us for Shall Furnish Medicine, a three-part series of the modern West. It's been nearly two years of living in a pandemic. How are you holding up? Reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Modern West Pod. I'm Melody Edwards. Today's episode was produced by Mashpee Wampanoag member Savannah Marr. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Our editorial team is Arapaho and Shoshone descendant Taylor Stagner, Cooper McKim, Noah Greenspan, Charles Fournier, and Sarah Ann Leverett. Our illustrator is Zach Kana. Music by Eastern Shoshone member Sean Francis and his band Pegasus. Also Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. This series was produced in partnership with the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media.
One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod. <laughs>